Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet to Go. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to our CTSNet Giants in Cardiothoracic Surgery series. My name is Jessica Luke, and I am resident editor of CTSNet and cardiovascular surgery resident from the University of British Columbia. I am delighted to be here with the honor of introducing Dr. Lars Svensson. Dr. Svensson is chairman of the Cleveland Clinic's Heart and Vascular Institute, which has ranked number one in cardiology and heart surgery for the 26th year in a row by the US News and World Report. He is a world authority in aortic surgery and renowned for his work in advancing research on brain, spinal cord, and kidney protection during major cardiac and aortic surgery, as well as simplifying and modifying the elephant trunk procedure, the modified David's reimplantation procedure, as well as development of the minimally invasive J incision for performing keyhole surgical techniques. He is principal investigator in numerous clinical research trials and is author of over 400 scientific publications. And as if all those accomplishments are not enough, he is also author of the textbook of cardiovascular and vascular disease. Dr. Svensson chaired the American Association for Thoracic Surgery Guidelines Committee and has chaired multi-specialty guidelines writing committees for aortic valve surgery, and treatment of thoracic aortic disease. Dr. Svensson, thank you so much for being here today and accepting our invitation. Well, thank you very much, Jessica. It's my pleasure to be talking to you. As you know, I was uh, reluctant to do this. I don't consider myself a giant in cardiac or cardiothoracic surgery. Uh, as the old John Newton saying goes, uh, I have been fortunate to in a sense, ridden on the shoulders of great giants and looked over their shoulders when they operated and I learned from them. And so I'm a reflection of the great people I had the opportunity to work with. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And you are a giant in cardiothoracic surgery in my eyes and the eyes of many others. Well, thank you. So um, without further ado, um, perhaps we can start with what inspired you to become a cardiothoracic surgeon? Well, it's an interesting question, and, and I'm sure most people don't particularly find this whole thing interesting, but uh, I wanted to do engineering and become a mechanical engineer. And I now live vicariously through my son, who's a mechanical and aerospace engineer, and actually doing his PhD in aerospace. Uh, and so I was committed uh, to mechanical engineering and indeed at Treverton College where I was, uh, I never looked or studied biology, botany, zoology, and went straight into medical school, never having uh, done that. But uh, what happened was we were on vacation 
And my father was listening to the news in the morning. And uh, he said, you know, I want you to listen to the news uh, at lunchtime with me. So I said, okay, fine. You know, he wouldn't tell me what it was. And that was when we were on December on vacation. And that was when Chris Barnard did the first heart transplant. And so that triggered a bit of interest in me. It sounded like it was fascinating, probably involved some engineering and, you know, maybe a hot lung machine and so on, as you probably know. Um, Chris Barnard, together with Vincent Gott, were early pioneers in the hot lung machine. And that was research being done in Lillehei's lab. Um, and so that stoked my interest. I had been exposed to a lot of healthcare because I'd grown up uh, on a hospital in a very rural part of South Africa. In fact, rural, underestimated. It was a very wild part of South Africa. It was completely undeveloped, a lot of wild animals and that sort of thing. Um, and so I had piqued my interest and then I felt that I had a calling to do medicine. And so I went into medical school and that's uh, how I ended up. And I wanted to do heart transplant surgery. I did some uh, animal research on that uh, and particular baboons. Uh, and then when Chris Barnard got rheumatoid arthritis, I said, I had a job with him, in fact, and I was going to work from him. I said, you know, he stopped operating and left cardiac surgery. I said, you know, if you don't mind, I'm going to then pursue further training overseas. And that's how I ended up at the Cleveland Clinic and then uh, Houston. That's amazing, Dr. Spenson. And can you tell us about your greatest mentors as well? Sure. Uh, you know, I was fortunate to have some really great people who mentored me. Obviously, my parents um, who instilled in me, you know, purpose in life and what the priorities were. And when I was at Trevithan College, um, the uh, school or college, uh, what we call principal, what you'd probably say a, a president here, got me involved in a lot of things. Um, and I captained various rugby and um, cricket teams, athletics, and uh, despite the way I look like now, you know, once upon a time, I could run a pretty good 880 and 800 meters. Um, and he also pushed me academically and got me involved with running the sort of state Science Foundation and organizing meetings. And that was the first meeting I really organized. And I've always enjoyed organizing meetings. And now for Cleveland Clinic, I oversee our CME program for HVTI. And we usually do about 20 CME meetings a year. So he gave me a lot of responsibility, but it was always there to help me when I needed help. And that was, I, I learned a tremendous amount, both from rugby and team playing, and also from him in leadership. Uh, later, uh, when I was doing my PhD, uh, Ron Hinder was a fantastic uh, supervisor for my PhD, and also during my general surgery training and vascular surgery training. Um, and then when I came to the Cleveland Clinic, I was very fortunate to have some fantastic uh, 
outstanding uh, mentors, uh, Fred Loop, uh, Toby Castro, Bruce Lytle, um, Paul Taylor, uh, people like that, Leonard Golding, um, tremendous people, and I kept contact with them and they were just wonderful. Then I went down to Houston and um, there spent time with uh, predominantly in aortic surgery with Stanley Crawford, who really was the father of many aspects of aortic surgery. Got to know Denton Cooley. And then uh, Michael DeBakey uh, was a very important sponsor for me. Uh, whenever I needed uh, money for a research project, I'd go in and say, Dr. DeBakey, this is what I did the last year. This is what I'm planning and would like to do next. And he would say, okay, how much money do you need? And off I went and did my research. So he was very helpful from that. And he and Stanley Crawford helped me get my uh, green card because I came my J-1 visa in the United States. And they put me in charge of cardiothoracic surgery at the VA in Houston. And at the same time, I was able to work at Methodist um, and be involved obviously with Baylor and uh, develop great friendships with Joe Caselli and Hazem Safi and a lot of trainees who went through that time. Uh, so I was very fortunate to have very strong mentors. And over time, I also developed, uh, fortunately through them, very good friendships with the leaders around the country, uh, Craig Miller in Stanford, Hartzell Schaff at Mayo, um, Larry Cohn at Brigham and Women's and very uh, influential people like that who um, have helped me in my career. It's amazing. I think that we all truly stand on the shoulders of giants and it's amazing to hear um, from you as a legend in cardiothoracic surgery and all the other giants that um, you have learned from and who have mentored you. It's truly a full circle and um, uh, goes uh, from one step to the next and to the future generations. Yeah, it's very important. And it's very important to mentor our future generations below, you know, that follow us. And um, that's uh, something that's a responsibility for leadership. Thank you so much, Dr. Svensson, for sharing your mentors with us. And can you tell us about what inspired you to simplify the elephant trunk procedure, replacing the total aorta in a single operation, the modified David's reimplantation, as well as the J incision? I know that there's a lot of <laughs> procedures in there that I have just listed, but I'm always very fascinated with how um, leaders in cardiothoracic surgery go about innovating in the process yeah. of doing so and uh, what those experiences are like. Well, um, Ron Hinder, my PhD advisor, gave me very good advice. Um, I had done a master's on wound infections, and he said, why don't you do that as a PhD? I said, I don't want to be seen as a PhD world expert on uh, you know, wound infections. It was the last thing I wanted. And so he said, well, go and find a problem and do some reading around it and see if there's an opportunity to do research around it. And so paraplegia after thoracic abdominal, and I started off with reviewing traumatic rupture of the aorta was a problem. And um, so I then did the research around that and developed some options, including intrathecal papyrine, which 
which we continue to use for thoracic abdominals, and we've shown that reduce the risk of paralysis by half. And so I've always thought that that basic mechanism uh, is very integral, I think, to us as humans. Uh, if you think about the Khoisan Bushman, which I always have had an interest in with my background in South Africa, being taught anthropology when I was at medical school, uh, you basically go and study the situation and try and figure out what you're going to do about fixing it or addressing it and then you take action and then you debrief and so when it came to the elephant trunk procedure uh, Hans Borst had written about it uh, but it was clear a lot of patients were dying after the first stage operation or they were dying during the operation from the aorta tearing. And so one day um, I was scrubbed with Toby Cosgrove and I said to him, you know, it's always a bit difficult to sew in the gap in the distal aorta. Uh, what about if we invert the graft and stuff it down the descending aorta and do an astomosis that way? He said, uh, that's kind of interesting. I think what I'm going to do is try and invert it, but keep the graft uh, in the field. And so that's what we did. I, I remember the patient very well. She was a young uh, African woman, African-American woman, and she did fine. She was a nice year, a couple of weeks, but she did fine. And then when I moved to uh, Houston, I said the same to Stanley Crawford, and he said, well, let's try that. So he then put it in the descending aorta. And by that stage, uh, in Houston, we had quite a lot of data on early and late outcomes after elephant trunk procedures. And there was the risk of bleeding and tearing of the aorta and also interval rupture before second stage. And uh, we largely um, eliminated that once we started putting extra plagiated sutures of that anastomosis, putting it down in the descending aorta and then using the writer plate for arterial inflow, which most people don't know. Stanley Crawford did the first LVAD operation for uh, Michael DeBakey, and he used the subclavian artery for inflows, and I believe that was in 1967. And I'd learned about that when I was with Stanley Crawford, and so I started using the subclavian artery for arterial inflow uh, during arch surgery and in our prospect of randomized trial we reduced the risk of stroke to 0.8% and mortality rate, 0.8%. And if I remember correctly, about two thirds of those patients, this was for total archers, had elephant trunk procedures. So that was the elephant trunk procedure. But then um, when we started stenting the second stage, Roy Greenberg said to me, you know, I'm having problems both with the elephant trunk being kinked uh, which wasn't an issue for open second stage and also finding it uh, during stent for stenting the second stage. And so I worked quite a lot with uh, Roy Greenberg and what we did was uh, I put some clips on the end of the elephant trunk and a piece of pacing wire. And then we could hook that during the second stage to complete the, the operation. As far as the... Uh, our modification of the uh, David reimplantation operation. I went to visit uh, Tyra David, who trained here at the Cleveland Clinic, 
many years ago, uh, must have been around about uh, probably 96, 97 or so when he was first starting out. And he was doing the measurements and so on. I thought, uh, I'm not sure about this. And after I'd done a few, I realized that positioning the commissures was critical and you had to eyeball it. I also thought that if we put pledges in the left ventricular output track, uh, we would reduce the risk of some of the fistulae and so on that have been seen with the uh, David reimplantation operation. And then I thought that if we reduce the annulus to a more normal size, particularly in these Markham patients, we probably would have better durability. And so we used a Hagar's based on body surface area apart from pledges to tie down. And we now up to about 1,000, 100, 1,150 uh, reimplantation operations. And um, in the elective patients, we had a mortality rate of 0.12%. And we're just analyzing our data on uh, 1,005 patients. And our durability is uh, 97% at 10 years. And in the 214 patients with connective tissue disorders, mainly Marfan's, um, we actually haven't had a 30-day death with the operation. And the interesting thing is, is the durability is about the same. You asked about the uh, J incision. Um, I had watched Manuel Antunas do redos without opening the whole chest, just splitting the upper chest. Um, and that was kind of interesting. And then Toby Kostrov invited me to watch him do lateral thoracotomy, uh, mini invasive operations, aortic valves. And flying back to Boston, I, I had a patient with Marfans who needed a composite valve route and mitral valve. And I thought, well, I need a bit more exposure and control of the ascending aorta. And so what I did was then the J incision from the sternal march into the third intercostal space. Now we usually go into the fourth intercostal space. And I did a trans aortic valve, mitral valve replacement from those days with mechanical valves, because um, this was a long time ago, must have been 95, 94, 95, somewhere around there. And then put in a composite valve graft and uh, that became the J incision. Um, Toby uh, adopted that for a lot of his mitral valves and aortic valves because uh, the paramedian incision was a bit more difficult uh, and the right lateral thoracotomy patients were developing uh, lung hernias. And so that's what happened. As far as the first total aorta replacement, um, the part of the reason was that a lot of our patients who had elephant trunk procedures weren't coming back for their second operations for various reasons, partly because some of them died in the interval. And one of our papers, as I recall, 12% died in the interval. And then some didn't want to come back. And I had a patient who had a 16 centimeter proximal descending aorta, ascending aorta was six centimeters, inferenal was six centimeters, yeah, aortic valve regurgitation. And I thought, you know, the only way we're going to be able to do this is do a J incision for V2 
the ascending arch part and then do a thorough abdominal incision for the rest. And so uh, for that patient, we then replaced the entire aorta. Our brain circa rest time was 10 minutes. The total body circa rest time, uh, as I recall, was about an hour. Uh, and I kept the patient hypothermic while I did everything. So the ascending aorta, we did the arch first and then through the thoracic abdominal incision, the rest. And he lived many years. I don't know if he's still alive, or probably not, but I would get a, a letter every now and again from him. And the only medication he was on was uh, aspirin once a day. So those are kind of some of the operations I've been involved with. That's amazing, Dr. Svensson. It's so inspiring. And you are chairman of the Cleveland Clinic. Would you have some advice on how to become a successful leader? Boy, that's a, a great question and uh, a topic I like to talk about. And I run a leadership course here uh, for HVTI. Um, there is a YouTube uh, sort of summary. It's a 10-minute summary of some of the things I shared with uh, our team, because we were about to start up a new leadership course and then COVID hit. Um, and this is a summary of uh, our long talk on what I think is important for leadership so people can look it up. I, I think the key things are early in life, one has to establish one's purpose, what you want to do with your life, what you're important, what's important in your life, emotional intelligence, what your vision is for your life. You need to decide what you want to do with your life. And I think it's only fair for people who are involved in your life, uh, you know, whether it's a spouse or whatever, but they know which direction you're going to take because uh, cardiothoracic surgery is a very big commitment and it, it imposes on a lot of the time of people. Um, the key other things are integrity. Um, and reliability. Then I, I think the way I look at it when I'm looking for new recruits is do they have a lot of energy? Are they able to energize other people? And uh, from a leadership point of view, can they carry out a plan, a strategy, and in other words, execute on that and make sure they've got the right tactics? And then make difficult decisions. Uh, edge as uh, the four E's that um, Jack Welch came up with. Uh, you know, he certainly um, hasn't always been considered the greatest leaders, but I think there's a lot to learn from him. I would add that in medicine, we have to have leaders who display empathy, educate younger people for the next generation, a certain level of, as Bruce Lightfoot you would say, gravitas, um, but elan, to make it an E, uh, innovation. So that's not an E, but uh, innovation is obviously not, but E, innovation. Um, and then I think it's very important for a leader to be a cheerleader, whether that's for success or for sorrow uh, in your group and your team. And, that's unfortunately part of what we need to do with leadership. There was a very good paper 
a few years ago in the Harvard Business Review looking at some 2,700 CEOs and what made them successful. And they looked obviously at those who weren't successful. But the, the leaders who were successful, they were reliable. They executed decisions quickly. So they were quick decision makers. Um, they were looking for high impact for their companies and they were innovators. Now, if you think about those, that's what cardiothoracic surgeons do. I mean, we make decisions with incomplete information on a regular basis in the operating room. So that comes naturally as a leadership skill, I think for a lot of cardiac surgeons and we have to be very reliable. A cardiothoracic surgeon cannot go in and have an off day. Well, you know, today, I didn't throw the ball as a quarterback so well. I had a couple of interceptions and we lost the game. It's just not acceptable for a cardiothoracic surgeon. You've got to be at the top of your game all the time. And so that's another thing about leadership as cardiothoracic surgeons being reliable. We, I think, tend as a group to be great innovators. And um, you know, we do work for impact on patients' lives. I think that was a, a critical aspect. We could talk a lot of other things. Um, starting from when I was at Trevithan College, I've always had an interest in the issue of leadership and how you succeed, how, you know, what results in failure. And I have my own working definition that I hang my hat on. It's not something that you're going to see in a, a business book on leadership, but what I would summarize it is is that great leadership is the ability to foresee the future challenges and opportunities develop a reliable strategy and then through the tactics of influence integrity trust motivation lead your team to a higher goal that has moral impact and in the video that uh, I was referring to, I sort of work backwards. You have to have that higher goal in leadership. Uh, otherwise, as far as I'm concerned, it's not going to be great leadership. So I have in my corridor outside here um, photographs and paintings that emphasize that, and particularly uh, uh, that of Lincoln and Martin Luther King, but I've also got other leaders, pictures in the corridor, Churchill. Now they were great leaders and they had very high moral values that they were aiming for. But one cannot get away from the fact that they've also been leaders who have influenced their countries. And we might look at say Russia, China, uh, Germany, etc. But they were great leaders for their people, but they didn't have that moral value. And I think that's where one separates the great leaders from the uh, greatest leaders from the moral point of view. And in medicine, we have the moral value of taking care of our patients. You might call it the North Star. I, I refer to it as a lodestone with my Viking background. So you know, that's how lodestone from where the sun, in a sense, guides us. Uh, goals, metrics, you cannot produce high quality care if you're not looking at the metrics.
grasping and discussing that. And then the other aspects I mentioned, the personal aspects of leadership, like influence, integrity, trust, being able to motivate people. And part of leadership is developing strategy for your team and trying to guess what's going to happen. And obviously now during COVID, um, that has upset a lot of our plans and the way we look at medicine. And, but that's part of leadership. You have to deal with those aspects. Um, the other thing I, I would say is when it comes to motivating people and keeping them engaged, you have to deal with people on a personal level. And so that means that they have to foresee personal growth for themselves. You have to allow them a certain amount of autonomy, especially for physicians and cardiac and thoracic surgeons who are very intelligent, very skilled. Um, and they have to um, master their craft, I think. I find that as young cardiothoracic surgeons master their crafts, so in judgment, which is often something I don't learn very well during residency, that leads to a much happier person. And then there are other aspects, personal relationships, family, friends, having interests other than medicine, but also diversifying your professional career. Uh, and that includes being a great surgeon and clinical care, but also being involved in education and research. Um, so that one of the things that I think has been a, a very important issue to deal with in healthcare, modern healthcare, is that the electronic medical record. And I've seen a lot of dissatisfaction, particularly for the older physicians and getting used to electronic medical records. And so efficiency in taking care of patients is a very important part of that. And I touched on relationships and how important they are. I think particularly as medicine continues to evolve, we're going to have less and less resources and it's going to become more and more of a calling, but people are going to have to have the resilience to deal with the challenge of the future. Fortunately, in cardiothoracic surgery, we're in a very exciting field. It's very great of gratifying. It's a great privilege for us to not only save lives, but also improve the quality of people's lives and also give them a much longer chance of survival and spending time with their families. And so it's a wonderful speciality to be in. And uh, I've always loved the fact that I went into cardiothoracic surgery at didn't become an engineer, but I lived vicariously through my son's education and training. Thank you so much for all the advice and insight, Dr. Svensson. Very inspiring. Basically, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, and yeah. um, being a good leader depends on you being a great person, but also, um, also supporting and nurturing um, the team and building the team around you to achieve a unified goal. Sure. And um, in addition to your leadership roles, 
you also maintain a very clinically active practice and at one time doing over 680 operations in a year. How do you go about achieving that specifically for advice for those who are surgeon leaders and also trying to maintain a clinical practice? Well, it involves a great team around you. I, I mean, when I was that busy, I had fantastic support and the Cleveland Clinic is set up so that surgeons can be very busy and have the support around you to manage a lot of the aspects, for example, gathering the tests together, making it efficient practice, I mentioned that earlier. And so that was fantastic. We, we have the setup at the Cleveland Clinic uh, to do that. And our leaders of the past made sure that that situation was set up, that it was very efficient and we were able to concentrate on spending our time in the operating room and taking great care of patients. And the infrastructure that they set up was just wonderful for being able to do that. And on a personal note, I hear that you have the world's 19th largest lion skull in your collection. <laughs> Can you tell me more yeah. about how that came about? Yeah, um, so I, I have a, a small collection, not that many, uh, I don't know, half a dozen different types of skulls, plastic skulls of, for example, polar bears. I've been up to Canada and Churchill and photographed polar bears up there and seen the skulls on the tundra from polar bears that have died. Um, I saw, for example, the American lion skulls at La Brea Tarpits in Los Angeles. They're about a quarter of the size bigger than the African lions. And uh, so I also have a tiger skull, uh, which interesting is not quite as big as the lion skulls. Anyway, and I, I, I love photographing the big cats. And in fact, one of my former trainees uh, gave me a wonderful trip and I also spoke in India, but I would manage to visit both Corbett and Rantambor and photograph tigers and both places. So uh, the big cats have always been a fascination for me. And, and that started when I was growing up, uh, where I used to ride my horse as a kid, and, you know, ride around the African savanna and grass fields with my dog at the hill, um, was where the largest lion ever uh, killed was shot, it weighed 690 pounds. Now, the reason why it's not recorded as where it was shot, which is in a very wild place in Africa, and at that time it was very wild. It was 20 years before I was born, obviously. But, but um, uh, it was south of the Kruger Park. And the reason why it's listed in the Guinness Book of Records as Hector Strait is because that's where there was a railway, a refueling station for steam engines to get water and coal. And so they had a big weighing machine there. So they took the line when they realized it was so big and been killing a lot of the local uh, cattle and took it there. And they waited at, at this town. Well, it's not a town. As I said, it was a place where they refuel called Hector Sprite. And as a kid, that's where I used to catch uh, the steam engine train to get to school, take two nights and a day 
uh, to get to school. And so it was weighed there and uh, I chatted to the family and the guy who actually shot was a man called Anderson who prospected for gold in that area. And, but he also had a rifle, so he was called on to deal with problem animals. And there, when I was growing up, there was a so-called motel. Uh, it, it was actually a shanty building, more of a barn, but there was a couple of rooms in the back for the people could sleep over if they had a problem with this train station, that's all that. And Anderson shot a very big buffalo uh, in that area that was chasing people and trying to kill people too. And this buffalo has got wide horns, it's about 50 uh, inches wide. And there's now a proper sort of hotel there. And if you want good luck, you've got to kiss the buffalo on the nose and that brings good luck. So I, I, I went aside there, but so I've always, had an interest in the big cats and I love photographing them and watching them, although my favorite is a leopard. And for many years, uh, I supported research and lions uh, on lions in Zimbabwe. The population of lions has shrunk tremendously over the last uh, few decades with the loss of uh, environment growth of populations the population is probably only about 35,000 left now in the wild. And a friend of mine actually was involved in helping to restore the lion population in India. And so I'd been sponsoring lion research uh, in Zimbabwe. Uh, the research was made famous when Cecil the lion was killed because he was one of the lions in the research project. And so I helped uh, with the sponsorship of that research line, collars, GPS, etc., and uh, helped uh, three guys do their doctorates at uh, Oxford. One of them was actually a Rhodes Scholar too. And uh, so I'd been supporting their research and they said one day, uh, you know, you, you've helped us out. Is there anything we can do for you? So I said, you know, I've always had an interest in lions and if you have a lion skull, I'd love to at one of the lion skulls. And so it turned out one of the two lions in one of our research projects that I sponsored that were collared, one of them got killed when three other lions took over the pride. And um, so they gave me that lion skull and I hadn't thought much about it. And then one day I decided to look it up and measure it the way they're supposed to do it, Roland Ward measurements. And, Turned out it was the 19th largest uh, recorded skull. So uh, it joined my collection of, of uh, skulls. I have a baboon skull, two baboon skulls too, from my research time. And so that's the story of my uh, lion skull. And, and my son has actually went out uh, two years ago to continue the research, to work with the researchers and they do some fascinating stuff. They have accelerometers, they have acoustic recorders, apart from GPS and um, uh, radio collars on these uh, lines. So they've learned tremendous amount of stuff and the PhD uh, doctorate stuff that's come out of that has been fascinating. And my son in particular has worked on brown hyenas 
um, which are very rare, but happen to be uh, a large population of them in um, this area in Zimbabwe. And so uh, he's enjoyed that. And, uh, they've got a paper they're working together with Oxford University uh, on brown hyenas. So uh, it's been fascinating to watch that side of things. I see uh, a trend with large cats here. <laughs> yeah. Well, one night my son was uh, researching and they weren't seeing any lines of brown hyenas. They were waiting for them to come in. Uh, and they, they play a recording and bring in animals that way. So they decide to break out their sandwiches and have a sandwich. They have the lights off and they're eating their sandwiches. And I said, my son said, you know, I'm feeling a bit uneasy. Let, let's just turn on the lights and see if there's anything around. And there was a big male lion at their door and they had a broken window in their hand So they, they kind of got a bit of a fright, but uh, he didn't harm them. So if you're good to lions, they're good back to you. That's amazing. And thank you so much for sharing that uh, story. And finishing off, Dr. Spenson, what do you see as the future of cardiac surgery? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, and we could talk quite a lot about that. I don't think COVID has going to have a very big residual effect on cardiothoracic surgery. We had a, a update on COVID and uh, heart and vascular disease this morning, and it's available on, on the, or will be shortly on the internet. The first one uh, we did uh, under a year ago, and um, I don't think that's going to have a big effect. We'll probably see some increase in heart failure uh, and some patients needing lung transplants. We've done two physicians actually uh, have had lung transplants. So we may see some residual disease from that. And that's obviously high on the ticket at the moment, but we cannot get away from the fact that in 2019, according to an article in Jack, if anybody wants to look it up, um, 25 million people died from heart disease and stroke. 19 million were heart disease. And there's an epidemic of coronary artery disease now occurring in third world countries. Uh, whereas previously, when I was doing cardiology, there was a belief that uh, in Africa, coronary artery disease didn't occur uh, among the African populations. And then we started seeing it more and more now it's an epidemic and there are many reasons for that. Western diet, hypertension, diabetes, um, the so-called P25 particles, etc. Um, so around the world, coronary artery disease is going to grow. It's beginning to uptick in the United States again. And the data I'm referring to shows that the global load of uh, uh, cardiovascular disease. Um, and we have seen an uptick in our coronary artery bypass surgery volume again. We foresee increasing peripheral vascular disease. The one area that I put together a graph some five years ago, what's going to happen next 10 years, and it's holding pretty true, there's going to be a big increase in heart failure patients and obviously heart failure 
devices to manage those patients. And obviously we have a limitation in heart transplant organs. Um, and we are going to see more EP type procedures. So this is sort of long-term residual effects of atherosclerotic coronary artery disease, but also adult congenital heart disease. So those areas I foresee growth. Um, my own impression and backed up by this paper that I'm referring to that I just looked at, the rate of aortic aneurysm and aortic disease seems to be fairly stable. There's no major increase in that. Um, so that probably is not going to increase. The other thing is that in patients over the age of 75, 12% have valvular heart disease. And so we're going to see uh, more valvular heart disease. But at the same time, we're also seeing a lot more percutaneous procedures. And I, I see that not slowing down. In other words, we're going to see more of less invasive procedures being done, whether that's percutaneous, um, endovascular, uh, TAVAR, obviously, uh, invasive operations for the heart, robotic mitral is something that we do a lot of. And uh, the results of that are very good. We actually haven't had a death from a mitral valve repair uh, for six years now, touch wood. Um, and the results of cardiovascular disease management have become a lot better even in the last five years. I mean, the mortality rates for heart operations have continued to go down despite the increasing complexity of heart disease, reoperations, multiple valve plus cabbage procedures. So there are a few trends that I foresee both driven by disease prevalence and also by more and more innovative procedures being developed and managing uh, cardiovascular disease. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Svensson. And certainly for myself and on behalf of CTSNet, you have made amazing contributions for the cardiovascular surgical community and patients worldwide. I Thank you very much for joining us today. It has been such an honor and pleasure to feature you in our series of Giants in Cardiothoracic Surgery. Thank well, you thank you very much, Jessica. I enjoyed chatting with you. And I'm just a product of being fortunate by Providence of having great mentors. And I have a wonderful team I work with. Uh, it would never succeed without the great team of cardiologists, vascular surgeons, and uh, cardiothoracic surgeons, and many other people, our administrators, our research team. Uh, we're one big happy family and work together. So thank you very much, and best wishes for you for the new year and your future training. Thank you for listening to CTSNet to go your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, 
or by liking CTS Net's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.